Hello and welcome to The Ready Room, the Treks and Sci-Fi Microcast. I'm Jen, and I play Commander Savril and Dr. Ryla Drett. I'm flying solo today, which means I'm acting captain of The Ready Room. As we await the beginning of Season 9 of the RPG, Kenny and I decided that A. We could either not have a Ready Room this week, or B. I could read Savril's backstory, so we decided to go with Plan B because we thought you'd like that better than having nothing. So here you go. This is Savril's backstory, which you can find in her character profile. It's about three pages long, and I've been working on it since August 17th, 2007. So it's pretty detailed, and it helps me to um, write in the current seasons because I have something to pull from, some idea of who Savril is and how how she would react in certain situations. So... If you have a character in the RPG or you're considering creating a character, um, you might also think about creating a a backstory for the person you're writing for, because it'll help a lot. Okay, without further ado, here is Cyril's backstory. Some said it was a bitter paradox that she was born on a world where beauty was irrelevant. Yet attractiveness was not Savril's only quality, nor was it one that she would ever acknowledge. The daughter of Krell and Sereth had always counted virtue, intelligence, and faithfulness among the more essential assets one could possess. Outworlders, who were closely acquainted with her, remarked that the beauty she denied supplemented her central traits, a keen intellect and a charitable heart. Savril learned ancient Golic Vulcan before she could speak Federation Standard. As the daughter of a historian, she also learned to read and write the ancient language. She was five when it became evident that she had a gift for it. The total embrace of logic was the only thing that came slowly to Savril, a peculiarity her mother insists she inherited from Krell's family. His grandmother was T'Pol, the first Vulcan to serve aboard an Earth starship. It is alleged that Krell's apathetic practice of Surak's teaching and his interest in unification is due solely to T'Pol's extended immersion among the human crew. Savril was taught to control emotions at a young age, yet she smiled often. Her father made no effort to encourage Vulcan stoicism, and her mother never appreciated his clemency with regards to their daughter. Ever the disciplinarian, Sareth was often the one who reminded Savril to suppress her emotions. Savril was five years old when her parents began planning her betrothal. The two had searched for an appropriate bondmate for their daughter since the day she was born. By five, her mother had narrowed the choices to three Vulcan boys, each from high houses. Two of the boys were her classmates. One of them had teased her, calling her names because she had once smiled at him. Unfortunately, He was the one that her mother had chosen for Savril's bondmate. She complained to her father about the boy, and Krill agreed that Tevian was not very polite, but informed Savril his teasing meant that he was fond of her. Savril failed to see the logic in the boy's actions, but she trusted her father above any other individual, and because he approved of Tevian, she would make an effort to anticipate the Kantilan ceremony. Savril was surprised the next morning to find Tevian waiting for her outside her home. She was on her way to morning classes when he decided to walk with her. Tevian stopped teasing her altogether, and Savril was appreciative of that, as she found it more difficult to suppress anger. 
Over the next two years, the two became friends. After several more smiling incidents, Savril was declared continually and unrepentantly over-emotional by her professors and expelled from school. They recommended that she be sent to a Vulcan master for rigorous mental training to combat the emotions she continually displayed. The young Vulcan girl lay awake the evening her professor recommended the Nath Palnar. Her parents were debating each other in the other room. Her father was not certain there was a need for such drastic measures. Her mother, Sarath, was sure that this was precisely what their daughter needed in order to become a proper Vulcan. If she did not undergo the training, she feared Savril would one day be declared Vrakasht, or outcast. Savril was 11 years old at the time, and her bonding ceremony was scheduled to take place in three months. She wondered if her intended family would withdraw Tevian from the bonding agreement between their two clans, and she was saddened by the prospect. Savril left her bedroom and entered the chamber where her mother and father still argued. When they saw her standing there, they ceased their conversation. I will accept the Nathpalnar, father. I do not wish to shame you. Infinite diversity began the Nathpalnar master. In infinite combinations, replied Savril. The teacher paused to consider the young girl and assess the impassive expression on the child's face. Our ancestors cast out their passions on these sands. Are you ready to do the same, Savril? The girl fought to keep her face inexpressive, but it escaped her restraint and betrayed her as it had so many times before. She looked up at her teacher in defeat. I'm afraid, master. The Nath Palnar instructor motioned for the girl to sit next to her. Surak taught us to cast out our fear. He once said there is no room for anything else until it is overthrown. Yet this concept does not imply rejection of fear. You must accept it. And you have taken an important step in admitting your fearfulness. Do not be ashamed. Your admission is the first stage in obtaining control. It will soon take you past the fear of the other. The fear of the unknown. Savril could not hold back the tears as she replied, I'm afraid to change, master. Change is the essential process of all existence. It signifies growth. Life. If we stop growing, we become stagnant. We cease to be the fruit that nourishes us. We become like the dust of our desert. Grit that blinds and chokes the living. Over the next few months, Savril learned to control her emotional reactions by understanding them. During meditation, she reflected on her actions, analyzing them in retrospect to determine whether they influenced the way she conducted herself. If she determined that they had, she focused on confronting the emotions, concentrating on the opposite of that emotion in order to force it down deep. After years of disciplined training, the process became completely subconscious, though she never truly became capable of concealing her emotions deep within her. They drifted near the surface just out of sight. You are now prepared to return to the world. Grief, anger, fear, and especially love will never threaten you again, said the master. I am grateful. Peace and long life, said Savril. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. This was the dictum of her people. They applied it to all things, apart from emotion. She always found that fact to be a curious one, and perhaps because of this, she continued to question. With the successful conclusion of her training, Savril was welcomed back into her family, 
and regained the seat at her school. Her child-bonding ceremony had been postponed for the duration of her training. A month after its conclusion, the ceremony took place. The Khan Talan was upon them, and so the family and friends of each child journeyed together to the ceremonial site. The temple was located near the vast desert canyon that the outworlders called Vulcan's Forge. The valley was formed by a nuclear war that devastated Vulcan during the time of awakening, a period in history when the warlike Vulcans exchanged violence for peace. Surak, who preached total pacifism and emotional suppression, brought about this renaissance. It seemed particularly relevant that the Khan Tilan be held in such a location, for it was a ceremony that signified a new beginning, a coming of age. That day, Savril found her newly honed emotional control to be quite useful. If the ceremony had taken place a few months before, she would have felt excited, nervous, even scared. Yet now, she felt nothing, which pleased her mother immensely. Clan members and friends of the family from all over had come to witness the bonding. They stood within the open air of the temple in the oppressive heat of the Vulcan dawn, watching in solemnity as the immediate family members prepared the two children for the betrothal. The one exception was Surak Dar Talbot, who was like a brother to Krell and an uncle to Savril. The half-Romulan, half-human Starfleet captain stood beside her parents. When the children were ready, they were escorted to the center of the temple, where the High Master awaited them. Each child knelt upon the stone floor and faced one another, as the high-pitched chime of bells broke the silence. "'We are assembled on these sands for the bonding of Tevian and Savril,' said the High Master in an ancient, husky voice. The old woman turned to Savril's father. "'Krell, son of T'Pol, is thy child of age for bonding?' The Master nodded and turned to Tevian's father. Sabat. Son of Senrek, is thy child of age for bonding? He is, replied Sabat. Let it begin, said the master as the ceremonial bells were shaken. She then turned to the children. Tevian, son of Sabat and Vusla, are thee prepared for bonding? I am, replied the boy quietly. Savril, daughter of Krell and Sereth, are thee prepared for bonding? I am, replied Savril. The master then reached for the children's hands and pressed them to one another to establish the mind link through their fingertips. She then began the ancient betrothal vows, Our minds, one and together, touching yet not touching, apart yet never apart, said Savril. Touching yet not touching, apart yet never apart, repeated Tevian. The Sistra bells rang out again as the master proclaimed, Thee are one, the bonding has succeeded. When the Pan Far comes, thee will return to this place for the Kuna Kalifi, peace and long life, she said to the children. Savril and Tevian replied in unison, Live long and prosper. When he was certain that it was appropriate to speak, Sirach leaned over his friend Krell and asked, That's it? Krell raised two eyebrows and replied in a whisper too quiet to be overheard by his wife, Did you expect pyrotechnics? A mischievous smile spread across Sirach's face. I'm not walking back through the desert without a full stomach. I'll pass out from hunger, and you'll have to carry your Romulan brother all the way to Shikar. I would only be capable of dragging you. You are too heavy to carry. The dust would choke your weak lungs, replied Krell. Sirach released a hearty Romulan chuckle as the family left the temple for the feasting chamber situated nearby. 
As bonded children, Savril and Tevian were inseparable friends. Most of their childhood was spent exploring the area surrounding Shikar with their pet Salots. Savril loved the desert. It was cunning and mysterious, a challenging puzzle created for the expressed purpose for being deciphered. Tevian found Savril to be a parallel enigma, and as they grew to adolescence, he recognized that, like the desert, her complicated nature was a difficult gulf to traverse. Their personalities were distinctly opposite. Savril's penchant for conversation diverged at a hard right angle from his inclination towards comfortable silence. Savril's tendency to question everything and everyone but her father contradicted Tevian's propensity to trust. Despite these differences, the two found their personalities to be complementary. They balanced one another, filling in the gaps and smoothing out the wrinkles. Dawn broke over the sands of the Sasashar Desert as Savril packed her belongings for the journey to the Science Academy. She was to begin her courses in archaeology and would be staying in the dormitories on campus. Her father, Krell, took the bags from his daughter and carried them to the shuttlecraft for her. He was torn between seeing her succeed as a young adult and wishing she was still his small child. He helped her aboard the shuttlecraft and sat beside her. They exchanged glances before she looked down at her folded hands. She was still having trouble maintaining her composure, despite the training she'd received from the Vulcan Master years before. He suspected this would always be the case. Cyril looked out the side viewport for the entire trip, unable to look his way again. Tavian awaited the arrival at the docking port and forced himself to walk slowly to the shuttle to help his betrothed from the craft. Krell had come, too, and he greeted Tevian warmly as they exited the ramp. It is agreeable to see you, Tevian, said Krell. And you as well, sir, replied his future son-in-law. Tevian held Savril's eye as she walked at her father's side. She was dressed in a flowing, sleeveless blue robe, with a necklace of gold-colored stones about her neck. The young Vulcan had begun his classes several weeks before Savril, and had obviously missed her company, for they had grown up together, and her friendship had become dear to him. She raised her hand in the familiar Tal Al and uttered, Peace and long life. He responded in kind, and they continued to the dormitory. When the radiant ochre sunset bathed the surrounding desert sands, Krell left for Shikar. As his daughter watched the shuttle leave, she felt a pang in her heart. Tevian reached for her hand to comfort her, and they walked to the dinner hall in silence. The vivid dream clothed her in elaborate layered betrothal robes that she would wear in her forthcoming Kunut Kali-Fi marriage ceremony. Despite the warm swath of her nightcloak, she continued to shiver, painfully aware that the tremor sprang more from fear than the chill. An anonymous figure, robed and hooded in darkness, stood waiting at a bend in the indistinct reaches of a corridor. A slender finger bent in summons and beckoned her in silent deliberation, a command that Savril had little power to decline as she was led further into the corridor. Still asleep, Savril sighed and shifted agitatedly in bed and followed the footsteps of the hooded figure who beckoned her. On a world where emotion was subjugated, she had no words for the sensations that stirred so often within her. Fear, anger, happiness, were all intimately known, but none had a place in her life. Lying amidst the tumbled linen on the bed within her dormitory chambers, Savril muttered inaudibly. 
She pulled the sheet over her head, a protection against the confused fragments of imagery that troubled her sleep. But she could not hide, could not break out of the dream. It continued to hold her tightly, binding her with the strength of iron shackles. Her dark eyes opened suddenly to the unfamiliar setting of her dormitory chamber. She sat up abruptly, the blackness obscuring the surroundings that enveloped her. After a moment, her eyes adjusted to the dimness and she remembered where she was. Her breathing slowed to a normal measure and she slowly moved to the edge of her bed. Pushing back the blankets, she shifted her feet to the cold stone floor, then pushed her hair behind her ear and rose from the bed. She stepped onto the balcony adjacent to her bedroom. It was late, and the campus was quiet. A cold current of air snaked around the terrace, rousing her further from the dream world she had only recently escaped. She drew a ragged breath and lifted her eyes upward to the night sky. The dream had been terrifying not at all resembling the ones she had experienced in recent weeks. Though the chill created discomfort, she preferred the cold night air to sleep. Savril lowered herself upon the stone floor of the balcony and tried to meditate. Her mind raced with imagery from her nightmare, the cloaked figure, her betrothal robes, the fear she felt. The images were new except for the corridor, the passage that wound deep within the darkened void, a void she and her father had interpreted as her innermost self. Her folded hands gripped tightly as she remembered the absence of Tevian in her dream. He had been in all of her previous visions, yet in her latest he did not exist, though in her dream she knew he should. In spite of the fact it caused her discomfort, she recalled to mind every detail of the vision. The cloaked figure had been trying to communicate something of great importance, yet its words were not comprehensible. They formed sentences of loosely constructed nonsense, which only served to heighten her confusion and increase her frustration. Savril dreamt the same dream for several years, every time experiencing the same feelings of confusion, frustration, and fear. She began to meditate before sleep to combat the visions, but it rarely helped. The night before her graduation from the Vulcan Science Academy, her recurring dream evolved. As she entered the familiar darkened corridors, a cloaked and hooded figure called out to her in a soft female voice. Come. Follow. Tevian, where is he? She asked the figure. The cloaked form vanished into the void of darkness, and Savril begrudgingly entered, unwilling to be left alone in the dark. Her breath expelled clouds of vapor that she instantly passed through it as she followed the shadow before her. With each step, the dark became darker, and the cold became colder. Savril had to use her hands to feel her way through the never-ending passage. The cold, wet stones lining the walls were jagged and sharp. Though they cut through her hands, they kept her from stumbling in the blackness that engulfed her. After a while, she stopped and listened for the rustle of robes and the resounding footfalls that denoted the presence of the individual she followed. She called out once more, Where's Tevian? The footsteps stopped, and the rustling robes became louder as the form walked back to Savril. A torch ignited and roared, lighting the surrounding area. Savril squinted as her inner eyelids closed instinctively. The highlighted form pulled back its hood to reveal the face of an older Vulcan woman. Her familiar, stolid features searched Savril's before transitioning to a warm, human smile. "'Who's Tevian?' asked the older woman. 
Sitting up suddenly, Savril opened her eyes to find that she was once more in her own bed. The darkened passageway replaced by her dorm room, bathed in the light of the early Vulcan dawn. After a moment, she realized where she was. It was graduation day. The gong sounded, which signified the end of the ceremony, and Savril walked with Tevian to meet their families. As Savril approached her mother and father, she noticed a familiar face. Her father and mother expressed their congratulations to both graduates before Krell introduced the woman standing near him. This is your great aunt, Admiral Tucker. You have met her several times before, but you were very young at the time. The woman's face beamed with pride at Savril. I'm very proud of you, she said. Savril's mind swam with the imagery from her dreams. The overwhelming realization rendered her speechless. This woman was the cloaked figure that had plagued her dreams for years. The admiral, clad in her dress uniform, tipped her head in polite nod to Savril. Her kind eyes sparkled with wisdom as she smiled once again. Noticing her daughter's strange reaction, Sareth took over. Your aunt wishes to speak to you with regards to your career. Savril, revived by her mother's voice, managed to quietly repeat the last words of Sareth's sentence. My career. Have you ever considered Starfleet? Asked the Admiral as they began to walk to the shuttle that would ferry them all to Shikar. Sareth helped her daughter don the ornate Kunut Kalifi robes as the younger woman stared at herself in the mirror. The red color caught the copper highlights in Savril's hair, which she allowed to cascade down her back. She pushed a strand behind her ear and arched an eyebrow upward as she considered her reflection. Only a few days ago, Tevian had entered Ponfar, and their marriage ceremony was planned. They would have to be wed before she could leave for Starfleet Academy. The dawned wind rustled Savril's robes and twisted them about her ankles as she waited in the entry of Tevian's ancestral grounds. Disregarding the ceremonial guards, brandishing angry lerpas, her eyes followed Tevian. His unsure feet carried him instinctually to the jadeite gong at the center of the temple, and he struck the ancient chime with great force, signaling his arrival. Its deep resonance spread like a wave, the vibrations passing through him and out across his ancestral lands. His father once stood in this place, waiting for his mother. His grandfather had also stood where his feet were now, awaiting the arrival of his own wife. Savril flinched slightly at the sound of the first strike, and after a moment, she watched him strike it a second time to signal his readiness for the ceremony to commence. Led by the matriarch of Tevian's clan, Savril strode with the grace of a Lamatia up to the dais where he awaited her. Her raven hair caught the sun and shone with the intensity of the early Vulcan dawn as the heat of the desert rose to welcome her from the cool shadows of the temple. As she approached her intended, she allowed her gaze to travel from her feet to his eyes. Tevian watched her over his steepled fingers, and he muttered a mantra of control as they each knelt before the matriarch. The blood fever coursed through his veins, giving his eyes an intimidating guise of scarcely restricted mania. This is the Vulcan heart. This is the Vulcan soul, began the matriarch. The small crowd of family members watched in reverence as the old woman gestured to the kneeling pair. Tevian continued to gaze upon his bride. The sister's bells rang out, cutting through the silence and echoing through the temple. 
The time had come when Savril was allowed to demand a challenge, and Tevian's heightened senses tensed as he awaited the possibility. None came, and he relaxed slightly, his eyes never leaving hers. The Vulcan Elder touched their temples and waited as they raised their hands, two fingers extended to touch. Parted and never parted, Tevian spoke, his voice low and hoarse. Never and always touching and touched. The matriarch gestured for them to rise. Thee are wed, Tevian, son of Sebat and Vusula, and Savril, daughter of Krell and Sereth. Savril's face was serene, and her movements collected. Savril's fingers formally met his, and through their fingertips, the contact telepaths heard each other's declarations of love. In that moment, Savril instinctually blinked, and when her eyes opened once more, Tevian was gone, along with her memory of the bonding ceremony and their many years together as a betrothed couple. Savril found herself trudging through the unforgiving sands of the forge, carrying a heavy equipment pack on her back. After a moment of disorientation, the sound of her father's voice recalled her drifting mind. We have arrived, he said in a pleasant baritone that resonated in the valley surrounding them. Feeling a bit confused, she decided it was good that they were stopping. She carefully lowered her pack to the ground and swept her gaze over the area. Krell recognized the look of confusion on his daughter's face and passed her a container of water. Perhaps you require hydration. An undertone of concern seeped into his question. Savril could not recall much about their journey, or why they were in the forge. She took the water and sipped it casually, then handed it back. He watched her for a moment as she knelt to the ground and removed the contents of her pack. Vulcans were well adjusted to the climate of their world, but even so... They did sometimes fall victim to the heat. In the distance, they heard a man's voice. Savril, it looks as though we'll be traveling together to Cirrus Three. With the transport that your aunt left me, we should arrive within a week of our departure. She nodded. That would leave us with a week to complete this dig. We should begin. They were on a dig? The tools in her pack indicated as much, but she did not remember making the preparations for the venture. Krell knelt beside her. Maybe you should rest. He took her pack. I will set up your tent. Rest in the shade of that rock face until I've finished. She started to protest, but decided it would be best to simply obey her father. Finding the shade, she lowered herself into the sand and watched as her mother and Eric entered the camp. She knew the man well, but at the moment she was not sure how or why. He glanced over at her but schooled the curiosity from reaching his face and muttered something to Sarath. Are you well, daughter? asked her mother. Yes. Father insisted that I rest a moment. She's experiencing Kalarev. I could see it in her eyes. We are too far from the help of a healer to take any risks, replied Krell as he finished erecting the tent. Let us hope that this passes, Eric nodded slowly as he accepted Krell's reasoning. He had seen that look in his own face numerous times but he also knew that she shouldn't be aware of the minor temporal shift around them, one that had only lasted less than a few minutes before being restored. Savril woke to the sound of rain slapping the window outside her apartment in San Francisco. She rolled to her side and watched the droplets as they hit the large panes and spilled in long, wet streams to the base of the windows. Though partially concealed by thick 
gray clouds, the Golden Gate Bridge broke through the monochromatic scene with its crimson continents. Moving through the opaque mist were shuttlecraft flying towards various destinations, numerous quantities traveling soundlessly in the Pacific Coast morning. A burst of lightning momentarily brightened the room as she considered the meaning of the dream she had. The thunder rolled as she dredged the details from the depths of her diffused perception. In the vision, she was on Vulcan, investigating a site with her parents and an unknown individual within the forge. She was disoriented, and her father suggested that she rest while he set up her tent. Severil rolled on her back and stared up at the ceiling as she continued to recall the details of the strange dream. If she failed to recount them now, they would vanish from her memory forever. The echo of the fading conversation came into mind. The man she saw in her dream had recommended that they travel together to an archaeological symposium. In her dream, she responded by suggesting that they begin work right away in order to finish in time for the seminar. Cyril often discussed her dreams with her father. Though he could not interpret them, he did not dismiss them either. She would discuss this one with him later. She sat up and pulled back the sheets. She was to report for duty aboard the USS Anasazi, a science vessel that would be researching a long-vanished civilization. Cyril was now its archaeology and anthropology officer, and was to report for duty at 0800 hours. It was now 0500 hours, plenty of time with which to center herself through meditation. Savril entered the shuttlecraft and took her seat across from a Benzite male and an Andorian female. They each nodded politely and introduced themselves. Then the Benzite took a breath from his breathing apparatus and proceeded to dominate the conversation. To say the least, he was overly enthusiastic. The Vulcan lieutenant was grateful when another officer entered the shuttle and the Benzite turned his attention to the Terran man. As the tall man took his seat next to Savril, he nodded and smiled to each of the passengers. The introductions were repeated, and the Benzite's forecast continued soon after. His relentless blathering persisted as the shuttle lifted off and began its short jaunt towards the Obrith-class science vessel, the USS Anasazi. The Benzite ensign's prolonged monologue prattled on and on. When Savril was certain she could no longer take any more, the Terran man interrupted the chatty ensign. Uh, which department are you assigned to, Lieutenant? He asked Savril abruptly. Archaeology and anthropology, she stated smoothly. Me too, replied Lieutenant Locke with a charming smile. The sky transitioned from blue to black as the craft broke Earth's ionosphere and approached the docking bay. Locke quickly complained that the vessel nestled within the port was the ugliest ship he had ever laid eyes on. Savril ignored the comments and watched the movement of stars as their shuttlecraft banked towards the science vessel. The flight crew requested docking permission and were answered by a brusque male voice. Permission granted, parakeet. Proceed toward docking bay one. The parakeet entered through the force field and landed with the grace of its namesake. Savril and Lieutenant Locke stood simultaneously and picked up their respective duffels. The Terran offered to take Savril's bag, but she politely refused and proceeded quickly towards the exit as the Benzite once again started his nonsensical discourse. Locke followed her out. Practically jogging to keep up, he squeezed into the turbolift with her. After you've settled in, maybe we could catch a bite to eat. She arched an eyebrow and turned towards the door. Perhaps another time, Lieutenant. She heard him exhale sharply in acknowledgement of her response, and determined that her reply had disappointed him for some reason. Without turning her head, she shifted her eyes in his direction. 
He was staring at his feet, with his hands clasped behind his back. She turned her gaze back to the door as he asked, How about tomorrow evening? The lift slowed to a halt as she stepped onto the deck. Goodbye, Lieutenant, she uttered evenly as she proceeded down the corridor. David grinned to himself as he watched her leave. I'll see you around then. The Anasazi began its journey at the Solarian system in the first week of Savril's assignment. The Federation colony called Solarian IV, positioned near the Cardassian border, was the science vessel's ultimate destination. In recent months, a survey team happened upon the remnants of an ancient civilization. A cloak of mystery surrounded the find, and Savril knew no more than the fact that the excavation was to remain top secret. On the way to the star system, the science vessel stopped at the Federation starbase, Lias Station Alpha. From her cabin, Savril observed the station, cast in a purple hue and lit with a thousand blue lights. She could see several vessels from various worlds surrounding the top-shaped starbase, and marveled at the colossal size of the man-made city and the stars. As the Anasazi docked, the captain's voice broke the silence of Savril's quarters to announce their arrival and inform the crew of the purpose of the sojourn. While docked at Lias Station Alpha, the crew would be supplemented with additional members as well as equipment. Before she dismissed the crew, Captain Stewart's orders were to report back to the ship by 1200 hours the next day. Clad in her blue one-piece Starfleet uniform, Savril entered the Starbase Promenade and surveyed the cloud of people moving about the multi-level station. The diverse throng of individuals seemed to have no real objective other than socialization. For the majority of them lingered about, conversing in groups. Many carried duffels, presumably packed with clothing for their short stay, while others bore several cases for extended visits. Savril's pause at the railing was brief, for the flow of people was slowed by her loitering on the narrow walkway. As politely as she could, the Vulcan pushed through the relentless stream to find a spot where she could escape the crowd. She slipped into a lounge for a cup of tea. The bar was filled with capacity with Terrans, Tellurites, Trill, Klingons, and various other groups of races she did not recognize. The Vulcan woman spent some time searching for an empty table before she managed to discover a seat near the Domjot table, where several of her fellow crewmen had begun to converge. One of those officers was Lieutenant Locke. He was too wrapped up in rolling the Tarek into straight nines to realize that she'd entered. He seemed particularly impassioned by the game for his eyes held the look of euphoria that grew wider each time his opponents made a poorly planned move. While she waited for her tea, Savril observed the game in an attempt to learn the rules. She had finished two cups by the time the first match ended. Apparently, it was rather short. She overheard another observer say that Domjot games took over seven hours. Credits were exchanged, and defeated players exited the lounge in disgust. One of them called Lieutenant Locke a hustler on his way out. Apparently, this was a compliment, for the tall Terran's smile increased in size at hearing the statement. Another player, Eric James, taking a break from his research in binary clones, was glad the game had ended. Although she did not remember him, Savril's entry had severely distracted him. The loss of their child still weighed heavily on him, and her presence reminded him of that loss. It did not help that he had spent the last few hours speaking on the virtues that she held, even if he did not name her. In order to play another game, they were in need of two more players. David Locke challenged the room, yet only one contender accepted. Lieutenant Locke scanned the lounge for another opponent. 
His eyes fell on Savril and remembered the conversation regarding Vulcan women that he had just concluded with Eric. With his thoughts still on victory in Vulcan women, David immediately invited her to join the game. I have never played, she admitted flatly. David was glad to have the opportunity to get to know the attractive science officer and graciously offered to teach her. Savril politely refused, yet he was not easily deterred. He enjoyed the challenge. Now he had a new game to win. David put down his cue and walked over to the table where she sat. I'm sure you would enjoy this game. Vulcans are sharks at Domjot. Come on, I'm not taking no for an answer. Locke was persistent, and after a few more persuasive remarks, he finally coerced Savril into joining the match. Another player began the game as David handed Savril a cue stick and started to describe the basic principles. She had watched the game long enough to determine those points herself, but said nothing as he continued to give her direction. When it was her turn to shoot, she leaned over the table and aimed the cue at the ball. David took the opportunity to correct her form and helped by reaching around Savril to aid her in lining up the shot. She shrugged him off with a cool comment. I can manage, Lieutenant. He apologized and stepped back to give her room and a bit more instruction. Before he could finish directing her shot, Savril made the necessary calculations and scored the first straight nines of the night. The crowd roared as she moved away from the table to allow David to shoot. He congratulated her before lining up his cue with the Domjot ball. The handsome lieutenant didn't like to lose, and did everything he could to beat Savril. But by the end of the evening, she had won the four-hour match. Lieutenant Savril was just a natural, a real shark, and he was even more enamored with her. The Vulcan stared in quiet contemplation at the meditation candle on the floor before her. Its shape intermittently morphed and flickered in the stillness of her darkened quarters. At first, all she saw was the dancing flame, and she analyzed its properties as a scientist would. Gradually, her analytical mind released its grasp, allowing her to drift away from the tether of critical thinking. As she crossed the boundaries of reality and moved into the subliminal realm, her breathing became measured, and she centered her thoughts on slowing her heart as it beat in her side. Concurrently, the Vulcan allowed her vision to ease, and as it did, the candle's flame became a vague, glowing orb of growing warmth. Soon after, her surroundings slipped away like daylight at sunset, and she felt her consciousness glide into a state of extraordinary serenity. Her liberated subconscious soon painted a landscape devoid of features, and she stood motionless on a plane of light as suppressed thoughts, emotions encircled her in a cyclone of imagery. The pervasive rotation slowed, presenting her with a man she had come to know as David Locke. His expression denoted anxiety as he took her hand in his. Dropping to one knee, the lieutenant reached into his pocket and removed a ring. His voice echoed in the emptiness as he made a sudden proposition. On the plane of light, Savril felt the bliss she denied herself to feel at the moment he had actually proposed. David began his pursuit of Savril while on the shuttle trip to the science research vessel, the USS Anasazi. At first, she had avoided him, but soon the young Vulcan found it impossible to shun the persistent science officer. He shadowed her everywhere she went. There was never a day that went by when he didn't bump into her. In the first week of her post aboard the Anasazi, they had begun what she thought was a friendship during a Domjot game. In the weeks that followed, he had taught her to play pool, poker, and darts on the holodecks. 
Each time the two met, fellow crewmen joined them. To the Vulcan, the encounters were no more than social gatherings between colleagues. To her Terran suitor, they were chaperoned rendezvous. As their assignment stretched on, the quantity and significance of the artifacts recovered steadily increased. Because she was in charge of the department tasked with cataloging and studying the relics, the holodeck social gatherings were indefinitely suspended. David was her subordinate, and he spent many hours in the lab at her side, researching the findings. Savril found him to be a diligent scientist. Little did she know he was actually a committed operative. Little did David know that he would be romantically distracted by the mark he was assigned to Shadow. It was during a late shift that the Section 31 operative broke the cardinal rule of his profession and got personal. He stole a kiss from the unsuspecting Vulcan. Lieutenant Locke had not expected to be pushed across the room like a ragdoll, but once he awoke from the coma, he found her to be more receptive to his affections. They courted for two years, and in that time, he managed to hide his relationship from his employers. When David's mission ended, he made the decision to continue the ruse as David Locke, the archaeologist, as well as the relationship with Savril. He told her he was being transferred, and asked her to come with him. It was then he requested her hand in marriage. With the introduction of a human to the family, Savril was faced with the prospect of creating a permanent divide between she and her parents. Her mother was a traditionalist, her father an idealist. It was doubtful they would ever accept David as, as her husband. Rather than give the Terran an immediate answer, Savril opted to meditate on the matter, which seemed to multiply his anxiety. Alone in the plane of light, Savril accepted the proposal, and David slipped the ring upon her finger. An instant later, she opened her eyes to find herself within the confines of her quarters. She glanced to her ringless hand and lifted it to her comm badge. Lieutenant Savril to Lieutenant Locke. Locke here, he replied in a mellow bass. Yes, she said after hesitating for but a moment. The room was filled with a shout that peaked the limits of the comm badge's output. I'm on my way, he said. I hope the ring fits. Savril was certain that her mother's xenophobic tendencies would be the sole basis for rejection of her human consort. Her father was less orthodox, but he would undoubtedly advise against such a choice, so the daughter of Sereth and Krell did not bother to notify her parents of the decision she made to marry an off-worlder, off-world. She was young, only 45 years old, and her parents coddled her as though she had just left their house. It was illogical, but nonetheless true. In modern times, she was free to choose whomever she wished, within reason. This fact did not stop her parents from pursuing potential mates for their daughter to choose from, and it was likely they would continue with more subtle introductions in hopes that she would dissolve her marriage to the ill-suited human. Risa was David's idea. It wasn't the vision of paradise he had described to Savril. There was too much water, and too many trees to stir her heart. The sky was an unappealing blue. The gold horizons of Vulcan were much more alluring. Yet the sandy shores welcomed her bare feet. The grains of sand were not as coarse as the volcanic sand of Vulcan, but it felt more like home than the cold deck plates of the Anasazi. The morning before they were married, Savril touched David's thoughts for the first time. On the surface, he was proud, confident, methodical, disciplined, and careful. At his core, he was passionate, gentle, 
considerate. She felt a deep connection to him, and it was during those intimate times that she let her guard down and allowed the current of emotions to ebb and flow. Yet there was much he kept from her, and she sensed this each time they melded. It was difficult to hide one's thoughts from such a technique. Only individuals trained to block mental probes had proven successful. Did he keep something important from her? Something that would negatively affect her opinion of him? Or did he clutch painful memories, too delicate to share even with his new wife? Savril left her sleeping husband and strode upon the sandy shore just outside to meditate under the anemic rays of the early dawn. Alone on the beach, she would consider the thoughts and images he willingly shared. Before they melted again, she would inquire about the ones he skillfully withheld. Savril watched the ricin sun paint the sky Vulcan gold and imagined that she was home again. It was rare for Vulcans to experience dreams, and yet she had had several. They occurred years ago, but despite her photographic memory, the visions faded like cut flowers, causing the details to wither and die. The remnants were like the shifting sands of the forge, and their meaning changed each time she dredged them up. Savril was unaware that she was evoking the vague recollection of a shifting timeline. It was altered three times, once when she was bonded to a Vulcan named Tevian, and again when she was a student at Starfleet Academy. She had departed from an archaeological symposium with a family friend, but they never arrived. Their craft drifted for weeks, and due to an anomaly, she underwent an earlier-than-expected pond far. The sands shifted before she saw their daughter Arya blossom into adulthood. The last alteration placed her on the USS Anasazi, and now she was married to Lieutenant Locke. Her eyes remained closed as he lowered himself beside her on Rice's sandy shore. The sound of waves crashing upon the shore filled David's ears, and should have prevented her notice, but the two were bonded now, and she felt his presence like a gentle caress upon her cheek. She turned her head towards him and opened her eyes. Good morning, he smiled. Why do you guard your thoughts? she asked, as she tried a piece of fruit that she ordered for breakfast. It had a bittersweet flavor, not at all what she had expected. She set it down on her plate and took a sip of tea to wash it away. Studying her expression a moment, David replied in a convincing tone, What do you mean? Why do you lock me out? I will not ask to know the details of your guarded thoughts. I only wish to understand why you hide them from me. She leveled him with a softened, yet impassive expression. David couldn't help but smile. He should have known that she would detect his attempt to hide who and what he really was. He needed a convincing lie to explain it away. Compelling fabrications were his specialty, and though he did not relish the thought of spinning them for his wife, he did not have a choice in the matter. It's not that I don't want to tell you, I just, I just can't tell you right now. Her face was typically expressionless, but her eyes harbored deep concern. Perhaps a tragic death would suffice, he thought. I lost someone very close to me. She died in my arms. I don't want to relive that moment now. I don't want to share this time with the memory of someone I buried long ago. She nodded slowly, the concern in her eyes transitioning to compassion. The lie succeeded. He smiled at his accomplishment and kissed his wife.
One lie ruins a thousand truths. Savril stared up at the man who had fathered the infants she held in her arms. His human expression denoted pride as he took the boy and lifted him above his head. The newborn's dark eyes blinked back at him as he asked with a grin, "'What's his name?' David had been gone for five months. To where? She did not know. He had missed the birth of the twins, and thus she took it upon herself to name the half-human, half-Vulcan newborns. His wife flicked a dispassionate gaze upon him. Naval, she replied coolly. He offered her a smile, then gently lowered the boy to his arms and kissed his nose. Naval is a strong name. Is it traditional? It means steadfast in ancient Golik. So, he's just like his old man, replied David with a chuckle. He glanced to the daughter, who was now sleeping upon her mother's breast. And the girl, he inquired, Marin. An awkward pause followed before he pressed further. And what does that mean? It means Marin. He chuckled at her simple answer. Is it an ancient name as well? She didn't answer him. The smile faded from his face, and he waited a moment before handing the baby back to his wife. I said I would be back as soon as I could. Where did you go, Setasu? He cast his wife a weary smile before leaning down to kiss her forehead. I'll tell you soon. Her face remained free of expression, but her eyes smoldered. She could see through his lies. He knew he would have to tell her the truth soon. The Big Bend region reminded her of the Forge in some ways. But the sky was blue. Bluer than the skies of Risa. Earth was no more her home than the planet oasis where she and her consort were bonded. Savril stood in the small courtyard outside the residence David purchased for her and surveyed the southwest Texas landscape. The house was seated on the rim of the Chisos Mountains. Her perch above the valley was a bastion of seclusion, and she spent much of her time there alone with the babies. It was peaceful, but lonely. David left again after the twins were born, and he'd been absent for another five months. She was growing tired of wondering where he was and what he was doing. Savril had many theories, but they were all conjecture. That morning, she was awakened by a chime that indicated the receipt of a communique. Her husband sent correspondence daily, but his messages always lacked substance. This one was no different. The message was laden with the same glib apologies that he made the last time he left them. Savril was unmoved as she listened to his charming baritone express regret. His message assured absolute candor, but she could not bring herself to believe him this time. It was in his nature to lie, and she had come to accept the fact that anything volunteered would be laced with dishonesty. Savril sat on the cliff edge and watched as the shadows slid over the topography like ghostly vessels skimming a desert ocean. A cacophony of avian chatter caused her to turn her eyes upward. Overhead, white-throated swifts wheeled and spun in the air. Their clicking calls grew as they neared her, then receded as they darted away. The Vulcan's inner eyelids instinctually flicked over her pupils as she followed them into the sun. The silhouettes were being pursued by a larger shape. It, too, moved across the globe of fire, then plummeted, gathering speed as it rapidly fell upon the small birds. A peregrine falcon, 
wings folded, had dove amongst the chattering flock. An explosion of feathers signified that the bird of prey had struck a lone swift. Savril watched with apathy as the falcon gracefully circled the falling bird, then snatched the broken body before it reached the dust of the valley below. The wind stirred the sand, sweeping it over the weathered stones of her mountain. A torrent of ochre dust moved swiftly towards her in a twisting pillar of heated air, as shimmering particles of light coalesced in the center to form the body of David Locke. She waited for him to solidify before standing. The dust devil moved past her as he took a deep breath of fresh air and smiled. She was a sight for sore eyes. Her hair was down. He'd always liked it that way. And she was wearing red, his favorite color. Has she done those things for him? He hesitated a moment before stepping forward to embrace her. She was unyielding at first, but after a moment his wife relaxed and turned her face upward to meet his lips. The breeze whipped her hair about him. It smelled of jesper. Her mother must have brought her a bottle when she came to visit last month. He had missed that enveloping aroma. David took her delicate hand in his and they walked together to the home he had built specifically for her. The house was typically Savril, orderly yet comfortable. Brightly colored settees and couches waited for visitors that rarely came. Lining the walls were ancient Vulcan relics. Resting upon pedestals of varying heights were replica artifacts from numerous archaeological digs. Under his feet, beautifully crafted rugs broke the monotony of the gray stone floors. She offered him a beverage as he lowered himself into a chair. David nodded and admired the way his wife moved as she entered the kitchen to make his drink. A moment later, she returned with a glass of iced tea. Where are they? he asked as she handed him the beverage. Asleep. He wanted to look in on his children, but was ashamed to admit that he didn't know where their room was. She seemed to sense this and gestured for him to follow. They entered a nursery at the end of a narrow hallway, where two infant twins lay nestled in a crib. David couldn't help but smile as they twitched in their sleep. A cube of ice shifted in his glass, causing the babies to stir. Savril impassively reached for his tea and left him alone to watch his children sleep. Some time had passed before he found Savril sitting on the balcony outside her bedroom. It wasn't his room. He'd never spent more than a day there, which he had begun to regret as of late. She was watching the sunset, and he was watching her, wishing he had never taken the newest offer 31 had offered him. His wife sensed his presence and turned to see him moving to the chair beside her. The temperature was sinking with the sun. Soon it would be uncomfortable for her, and they would have to go inside. The two said nothing, opting instead for the comfort of silence. When the last of the sunlight was swallowed by the distant horizon, he finally chose to tell her the truth. Section 31 Her words were forced out through a sharp exhale. None of Savril's theories had led her to believe that David was a black operative. He nodded in response to her inquiry. Savril's barely contained outrage bubbled just below the surface of her composure. How long have you been an agent? Twenty-five years. The Vulcan shook her head slowly as she stood from her chair. You've been lying to me all this time. It wasn't a question. She had suspected as much from the moment she first melded with him. I would have jeopardized your life had I been honest. In fact, I'm risking your safety by telling you now. In typical Vulcan fashion, 
their discussion remained quiet and civil. During the waning hours of twilight, they discussed the future of the arrangement they called a marriage, their family, and their respective careers. Have you not considered leaving Section 31? She inquired. I have, but no one just abandons the organization. But it's not impossible, she pressed. No, but they would never fully accept my resignation. I know too much. Even if I was allowed to retire, there would always be an assignment that would necessitate my skill. Until that moment, she hadn't thought to ask what sinister deeds were required of him. What of your experience, David? Are you an assassin, a saboteur, a blackmailer? Perhaps you were all these things. Her velvet alto remained even, but he knew she harbored fear and pain. He moved to take her hand, but she pulled it away before his fingers could touch hers. She turned her face to the purple horizon beyond the balcony. David silently stared at her dark silhouette and carefully measured his response. I defend the Federation, and that occasionally involves actions that you would not approve of. All you have to know is that I don't enjoy my work, but I willingly carry out my duty to keep you and the Federation safe. She would do anything to free her husband from the shadows of 31, but only he could cut the ties. He promised that he would begin the resignation process, if only she would give him time and forgive his lies. She agreed to do both, and watched the early dawn paint the dunes as she rested her head against his shoulder. The last post was posted February 9th of 2009. I usually write the backstory post in between seasons, and I probably will continue to add to it until I reach the current timeline. So if you're interested in it, swing by and check it out every once in a while. Well, that concludes this week's Ready Room. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned before, if you are a member of the RPG, you might want to consider doing a backstory. It really helps you to understand your character when you're writing in the seasons. This is Jen, hailing frequencies closed. <laughs>